Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How are you doing on this rainy weather? Good. Damn. <laughs> Damp and cooler. It's, it's definitely fall now, isn't it's it? Wonderful. Yeah. This is my time of year. Me too. I love this weather. I do too. The trees look so pretty, and they look even pretty with a little glisten of rain. Yeah, yeah. They're they're falling fast. Rise up enough, I can. Tomorrow we're going to light a fire in the outside fire ring and sit out there and do some yard work. And That'll be enjoy nice. The day. Do more That'll sit, be nice. Sitting yard work. Do more sitting than yard work. There you go. Well, thank you for coming this morning. It is good to be with you. We will, uh, there's a good reminder to turn your cell phones off. Just, uh, I'll check mine and double check that it's off and uh, slip it to the silent mode. We're going to look at the last of John chapter 11 this morning. We are almost finished with chapter 11, but not quite, and I think that'll fill out our hour today. Very important ending to this chapter. We're nearing the end of what many scholars would call is the first half of the book of John, um, kind of the first 12, 12 to 13 chapters have been scholarly viewed as kind of the first half of, uh, of John, and we, we talked about a lot as we've looked at the first 11 chapters, this idea that, that John's gospel is different, and that it is teaching us who Jesus is, not so much about what he did, although John was very careful to choose seven particular signs that he felt were the ones that needed to be mentioned to really prove who Jesus was and to teach who Jesus was as the Christ, the Lord, as God, as Messiah. Isn't this kind of the ending of Jesus' ministry too? We are down to the end here. Uh, we are looking at... In the next chapter, it's going to tell us that, uh, or just not in the next chapter, but actually in the next several verses we'll read. See what verse it is. Um, yeah, verse 55, towards the end of what we'll read today. It'll say, now it was the time for the Passover. So this is the third Passover now that John has mentioned. So we know, we don't read John necessarily for a chronological timeline uh, because of the way he mentions the different miracles, but we do read John knowing that time is very important to him, and he talks about the difference, we learned earlier about the difference between those Greek words for time, it often says Jesus says, now is not my time, the hour has not yet come, and this third Passover tells us, we know by the things that happened and comparing them to all the Gospels, this is a third distinct Passover, so you know, you've always heard Jesus' ministry lasted about three years, this is why we know it. Because of John, the Gospel of John. And there's nowhere else in the Gospel that doesn't say, and Jesus ministered for three years. It doesn't say that. This is something we discern from looking at these four Gospels and comparing them. So this is the third Passover that we've seen Jesus, and this means it's his last Passover. So we're going to be prepared. John's going to take really chapter 13 through the end of the book, and he's going to bring us into that inner circle of what it was like with Jesus in those last few days of that week. Um, but we'll start that on chapter 12. 12 is kind of a precursor to that. And uh, we'll start that next week. 
But right now, for today, we want to look at this idea of how, after he's raised Lazarus, what the reaction has been. There's just been a really divided reaction. This miracle, like a lot of Jesus' miracles, tended to divide people. Some embraced his miracles and believed, and others were hardened and didn't believe. We can look at that and we can think, how could you not believe? I mean, just amazing to see what Jesus has done. You know, opened the eyes of one born blind. Raised a dead man now who'd been dead four days beyond all doubt. I mean, it's amazing what Jesus has done. How could you not believe? But yet that's exactly what the word is about to tell us. So let's look at the passage starting at verse 45. And let's read to the end of the chapter. And then let's stop and discuss it. This is verse 45. And many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on thus, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should perish and that the whole nation should not perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they took counsel on how to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer went about openly among the Jews, but went there to the country near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will come to the feast? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And that ends what we know of as chapter 11. Let's let's break that down just a little bit and think about what's happening here. Um, In verse 45, it tells us that many people, many of the Jews, and that phrase, remember how we've learned in that phrase, when John says the Jews, what does he usually mean? Israel. A little more than that. John means the leaders leaders of the Jews. That's right. One of the the things that scholars have had trouble with in the Gospel of John, we've mentioned this in the early chapters, was throughout it he seems to talk negatively about the Jews. Now remember, John is Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. The twelve apostles are Jewish. Everybody's Jewish in this story. So he's not anti-Semitic. Some people, in the name of Christian faith, have taken the gospel to be an anti-Semitic gospel. That means anti-Jewish. 
But that's not accurate. That's, that's not true at all. It's John's commentary. The way he writes this gospel, his stories, uh, he, he seems to bring, uh, and I put this on the uh, board here, this idea of a trial motif. Many scholars have identified in this gospel there seems to be a trial motif because one of the things John does not mention, and we're going to see that as we go through the second half of the gospel book, is he doesn't, men- he doesn't bring out the trial of Jesus. You know, the trial before, the, the, on that Good Friday morning, and that, mm-hmm. like the other gospels talk about. He doesn't, doesn't do that. So there's some interesting things. What, what John seems to have woven through his whole gospel is a tapestry of a trial. Okay, he shows... He, he, he comes from the very beginning almost in, um, well, it's, it's John chapter 3, verse 18. Let's just, I'll slip back there and read that to you real quick. In John chapter 3, verse 18, it says this. He who believes in him, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So right away from the beginning of this gospel, John is saying, you either believe or you don't. So he's going to set up this question, do you believe? So he's, it's like he's putting Jesus on trial throughout the events that he's chosen to ask you, the readers, do you believe? Now we go all the way to uh, chapter 12, which we're not there yet, but if we were... Um, See if I had the exact verse in my notes. I thought I might have written it down. Well, it's all the Pharisees and the, and the leaders that are the ones that are accusing him. Actually, the people, for, uh, per se, are not accusing Jesus. Right. And this is why he uses that term, the Jews, meaning the leaders. He, he doesn't bring a lot of individual conflict between Jesus and... He doesn't have the, a lot of the long narratives that Jesus between Jesus and the Pharisees and some of those. But he does speak in, in general about... Remember, he's writing from way later than the other Gospels. So by that time, there was a division in Judaism. Christianity began as a as a part of the Jewish faith, and eventually there would be a division. It had to come. Um, because the Jews, like we studied the book of Hebrews, you might remember, they, they, were, they were constantly persecuting the, the Christians who were in the temple in that area. Yes, go ahead. I may have my story wrong, but wasn't it the Pharisees that believed in Jesus, and it was the pressure of the people that he well, no, you're going to see, we're, we're, we're going to get there, we're not going to get there just yet today, but there is some Pharisees who do believe, Yeah. so you will see that, so you're not totally wrong on that. The, the Pharisees, not all the Pharisees end up against Jesus, and we're going to, one of the things we're going to talk about this morning is, is who this council is that we're going to, uh, that seems to, these People that went and told on Jesus and there's resurrection said, what are we going to do about it? And they call this council together. And we see this man named Caiaphas, who is high priest. We're going to talk a little bit about what that council is and who they are and, and what they represent. Uh, but John 12, let me give you John 12, 48 um, as a counter to John 12, 3, 18. John 12, 48 says this. We're not there yet. 12 is the next chapter we'll study, but I just want to go ahead and read it to you. Uh, in context of what I'm saying. It says in verse 48, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. 
The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. It's as if John is bringing out throughout this book, he has strategically chosen in the first half of the book to kind of put Jesus on trial for the reader, for the people of that day and meaning us who are reading today, and say, do you believe? Look at these miraculous signs. Look at this interaction with some of these other people and these leaders, these Jews that are leaders of the Jews, and see what you think. Do you believe? And then we'll see at the end of the Gospel of John, he's going to tell us things like, he's going to say, you know, there is so much more I could have said. The, the world couldn't contain if I told you all the things that Jesus, if I tried to write down all the things oh, Jesus did. Sure. That's at the very end of the book. But um, let's, let's think about this now in terms of this confrontation. Let me turn back here to the text. So it says here that some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. That was in verse 46. So it says the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? Well, let's, before we talk about what they decide to do, let's talk about who is this council. So first, the leaders of the Jews. First of all, there is a ruling council of the Jewish people. And that, does anybody know the name of that ruling council? Sanhedrin. That's right. It's called the Sanhedrin. I'll write that down here for you. I was just going to ask you what that was, because that's what my, my says, the meaning of the Sanhedrin. Yeah. So the Sanhedrin isn't mentioned by name here, though. There's an inference that they went to the council. But also, if you read it uh, in, in its context, some scholars will say, well, it's not necessarily the Sanhedrin. This is kind of an ad hoc committee, maybe, of the Sanhedrin. So who is the... Because it's, it's an on-the-spur type of thing. We've got to go get this together. Let's talk about this. Uh, but it does tell us that they went to the chief priest and the Pharisees. Now, why do you suppose the people went to the Pharisees? Let's understand something about Pharisees and, and, and the Sanhedrin. The Roman government owns... I mean, they conquered Israel. They conquered that. They, they allow Israel to have its own little puppet government, if you will, through these council called the Sanhedrin. Okay? And the Sanhedrin's made up of two different uh, bodies. Okay? There's the Sadducees Just and like the Pharisees. The Republicans and the Democrats. <laughs> <laughs> Bicameral type thing, yeah. So the Sadducees and the Pharisees. But who are these two groups? Where do they come from? Do we really know much about them? It's a good time to maybe stop and talk about it a little. Well, the Pharisees, to me, what I've read anyway, they're more the educated uh, Jews. Sadducees are kind of the common people, more more so. Well, actually, 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 you've got the part about the Pharisees being educated right, but that's not true about the Sadducees. So let me give you some things that, that, that where these guys come from. These are both groups that grew into existence in that intertestamental period. So between the end of the Old Testament and the coming of John the Baptist in the entrance of the New Testament story, there's about a four to six hundred year period, depending on when you call dates. And it's in that period, just a few hundred years, maybe about 200 years, we can't say the specific time, before Christ was born, is this area where we see these developing groups. Pharisees were, quote, the lawyers of society. They were educated. They 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 knew the law. Okay, they were the most educated in, in society. So they knew their Jewish law. In fact, they had been active 
in determining the or what becomes known as the oral law. Remember, the law of Israel was the first five books of the Bible, right? We call that the Torah. Remember that? Yeah. Okay. But then, all of the Old Testament scriptures together, we call the Tanakh, or the Jewish name for the Bible. Okay. All the received writings. But then. By the intertestamental time, these Pharisees, rabbinical Judaism was developing. Okay, rabbis are teachers of the people. Remember, they are no longer a sovereign nation ever since the Babylonian captivity. Although there was that period of time in there that we talked about a few weeks ago with the Maccabean revolt where they kind of had their own sovereignty. But then were overtaken by the Romans. And so in this sense, Rome controls them but allows them to operate. Pharisees are the lawyers. Um, Sadducees are actually the aristocracy. They're the rich people of the community. They're the richest ruling of the rulers. Generally speaking. All this is generally speaking. But also as part of the Sadducees, most of the Sadducees, many of them I will say, most of the priests were actually Sadducees. So Priests weren't necessarily Pharisees. They tended to come from the ruling families and the wealthier families and were Sadducees. The high priest was, and I, I don't want to use expletives that are wrong, but the superlatives or whatever the word is there, I won't say always, but the high priest pretty much was always from the Sadducees. Okay, and the high priest was a hereditary office, so it was passed in down in lineage, okay? So the priesthoods, they're all, the, so the, the Sanhedrin is actually, does anybody remember how many are sitting on the council? 70 plus one. And you know who the plus one is? That's the red. The high priest. The high priest. Okay, the high, 70 plus one is the Sanhedrin, the high priest. Now, of that, a <laughs> little, little, little musical interlude there as we get a little call. <laughs> it's kind of a jazzy tune to it. It's a fun tune. Um, that's okay. I'll let you get it before I continue here. Uh, happens to all of us. The, the Sanhedrin, the 70 plus 1, is, it has like any governing body, it has a majority and a minority. Okay? Which of these two groups do you think would be the majority? I mean, just, you're just well, guessing probably. The way, the way the Bible, the way I read it, the Pharisees are pretty much the majority because they seem to be the ones that are setting the law and all the rules that they're, they've got to follow. Okay, so the Pharisees are actually the minority of this council. Oh, they are? Yes. The majority party is the Sadducees. They're the wealthiest. They have the most influence with the Romans. It makes sense. They actually have... Uh, they're, they're actually... If I can list, I'm going to list a few things here. They're the majority. Okay. This is the minority. Let's talk about whether they have anything in common. These are lawyers. These are, uh, are what let's shall we aristocrats. say, aristocrats. There's a good word, aristocrats. Aristocrats. Ever since I was a kid watched the Disney show Aristocats, I always want to say that wrong, you know, the funny cartoon, the Aristocats. The Aristocrats. Think about the, the Pharisees are the, are, are the interpreters of the law. In fact, they've created what's been called uh, an oral, over the, over the centuries, they've created what's called an oral tradition. They also added to the law. 
Well, that's what the oral tradition yeah. is. It's and oh, it's okay. part of the law, but it's an oral tradition, meaning it's been spoken and received through the years. Oh, okay. Whereas the law is the written Torah. Uh, so the the Arab, the fair, the Sadducees, I mean, they only receive. Here's one of the major differences: the Sadducees only receive the Torah. They don't care for the oral tradition. So right away, with this difference, we have a huge difference in the Sadducees and the Pharisees. They do not agree on most of Jewish lifestyle because much of Jewish lifestyle is governed by all those oral traditions. The purification laws. I mean, there's so many things. Some of it's in the Torah, of course. But they've remember the Torah had 613 laws and by this time in Jesus' day there were 6,000. So the Pharisees have been busy at work through their generations, of, through their posterity. Do they and, still exist today? Okay, good question. Do they still exist? Because you have the bad Saudi Arabians, the kids, <laughs> and they're all fighting for the yeah. land. Well, these, these these, neither of these two parties really exist today. Let me tell, tell you why. In 70 AD, when the temple was torn down, when the Romans finally came in and tore down the temple and just, it was the big rebellion, uh, the Sadducees never existed since then. They went out of existence. The Pharisees did live on for a while, and they did develop in what is today known as rabbinic Judaism. So Judaism is now ruled by rabbis, teachers of the law. Okay, they're, they're ministers of the law, if you will. So the Pharisees lived the longest, and they existed the longest. Here's another important difference. Pat, you had said earlier you thought they were the majority. Well, while they weren't the majority in this council, they are the majority in the population. There are many more Pharisees well, than there are Sadducees in this party concept, okay? And the Pharisees are more connected with the common people. The common people are the ones that are having to live out all these laws. And, and, and this, think about it. The Pharisees, here's another difference. The Pharisees, their ministry was restricted to where they ruled the temple. And the temple was in Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I said the Sadducees real, ruled the temple. I'm yeah. sorry. The Pharisees, I said that wrong. Thank you. Yeah. They ruled the temple. The Pharisees ruled the synagogues. And what was a synagogue? That's the church. What we call precursor today of a church, a precursor yeah. today of a church, but it was the gathering place in the community out in all the towns, right. all the villages, all the countryside. So there are many synagogues around Israel, but only one temple in Jerusalem. Lots more Pharisees than there are Sadducees. So we see they both have a great influence in society, but in different ways. The Pharisees actually built. Frankly, they have a lot in common with Jesus, and I, I think that's going to be hard for you to hear because we're so used to hearing that Pharisees were against Jesus. Let's think about some of the things they had in common with Jesus. Actually, Pharisees believed in the eternal life of the soul. Pharisees believed in the afterlife. They believed in the resurrection of the dead. All things that Jesus preached and taught. But the Sadducees rejected all of those things. Why? Because they couldn't find them written in the first five books, okay, the Torah, five if you will. Books. So they had this, they were kind of the fundamentalists of the day. If it wasn't written in this particular part, then we're not going to believe it. That was kind of their <laughs> attitude. So uh, we see Jesus having a lot in common with Pharisees. So isn't it interesting that most of his discussions are with Pharisees, and usually they're, 
they come out into a rather indicting type of a discussion because Jesus is, you know, this is the group he calls a brood of vipers. And, and you know, he, he slays them with his words in so many ways uh, because they should know better. The Pharisees have a lot of understanding of things that are, they're almost right. I mean, they're right about the resurrection. They're right about the afterlife of the soul. They're right about the the idea of cleanliness and purity with God and all of this. What's the real problem with the Pharisees if they're right on so many things? The Pharisees fought with Moses, didn't he? I mean, Moses had a lot of problems with the Pharisees. No, Pharisees are way after Moses. But, But... Moses had a lot of problems with some of the leaders. Pharaoh, that might be a word that you're confusing there. Yeah, Pharaoh, who was an Egyptian leader. But Pharisees have so much right. Why the problem? What do they have wrong? It's like the head knowledge we have about Christ. And if you don't live it in, and through your heart, then you're just not there. I mean, it would be about the same thing in a way. Their practice. Their practice. They, they began to practice without keeping the heart or the spirit. So I think that's what you're trying to yeah, say with exactly. the heart there. You're right. You know, Jesus gets into discussions with them and says, you tithe to this particular amount on, on uh, everything down to the little things like the herbs, the mint and the dill and the cumin. I forget where that's in the gospel, one of them. And he says, but yet you forget the weightier matters. Like you don't, you neglect the poor and the widows and the orphans. So, there was just, if the Pharisees started outright, I really think they did. I think that their place and what they were trying to grow within the, the nation of Israel was right. But they were hardened over time. They were misguided because they let the law and the tradition of the law become their God. More so than the spirit of the law. Do you think that the Roman government might have had a little bit to do with that too? Um, no, I don't think that they had. I don't think so because of these two groups, this is the these are the very anti-Romans. The Pharisees are yeah, very anti-Roman, but the Sadducees are actually kind of pro-Roman. Yeah. So now let's right. with that background, I want you to listen to the dialogue again that we read about this council meeting. Okay, there's a council meeting taking place. So people have come to tattle on Jesus, say, You can't believe what he's doing. Some and they go to the Pharisees, they know these group of men that are that are so against always interacting with Jesus, always against him. What have they been, we've actually, John has told us, as we've seen throughout several of these chapters, they've actually been seeking to want to uh, kill him, to, to do away with him. They haven't said it in so many words perhaps yet, but they've been trying to arrest him, they've been trying to do, and Jesus has always had to slip away and uh, miss their chances to get him. But in that dialogue, listen to this now, let's go back to this council that's been gathered. I don't believe this is actually the Sanhedrin yet. I think these are a bunch of members of the Sanhedrin. But I can't say for sure this is the Sanhedrin. They had a particular time and place where they met every, not every day, but almost every day in the temple area. But this isn't necessarily in the temple area. So I can't say it was an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. We know later on, of course, there is an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. That is the trial that Jesus has put before uh, between before Caiaphas, you know, first he goes to Annas and then to Caiaphas, and of course to Pilate and Herod. But this is this is a meeting of this council, some of these men, and he says, "The report is, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on thus, everyone will believe in him." 
And the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. There's a great concern that they will lose their status. The Romans have have allowed them a good deal of of, uh, leeway in governing their society. Okay. And one of the things we know Rome eventually took away from them, Rome had taken away from them already by this time, was the power for capital punishment. So they couldn't actually put Jesus to death like they wanted to, but they had to get the Romans involved to do that. But they had a lot of power over the daily lives of the Jewish people. And their goal has been to destroy Jesus from pretty close to the get-go. And how, what's been their plan up to this point? What's been their plan to, what have they threatened to do with the people if they believe in Jesus? Do you recall what they threatened to do? Kick them out of the... Yeah, they had this threat called expulsion. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be kicked out of the temple. And to be kicked out of the temple, to be kicked out of temple life, meant you couldn't even practice your religion. You'd be kicked out of the synagogue. You're a man without a country then. I mean, you literally, their whole religion, their whole way of life was their religion. And they would cease to have a function in, in their... No livelihood, they probably couldn't work for a living. So much they couldn't do. So that was their goal, was that, uh, to expel them. Was it working? Apparently not. Apparently their goal wasn't working. Because what this report is, is that people are believing in this guy. In fact, if we let him keep going, everybody's going to believe in him. <laughs> what a great endorsement for the gospel, huh? Amen. You know, the more Jesus works, everyone believes. I love that. <laughs> And, and they're afraid of that because they want to protect their position and their power. And so into this discussion, into this discussion is we hear the name Caiaphas. It says, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. John puts a little note in there. He wants us to know this is the high priest. So his words carry an awful lot of weight. He is the president of the Senate up here, the Sanhedrin. He's the, he chairs the meetings. Chief, the high priest has a lot of power. And so he speaks. Caiaphas speaks to them. And he says, and you can read this a little sarcastically, I think. He said, you, you, you know nothing. It's like he said, you dummies, yeah. do you not know anything? You can't see that it's expedient for one man to die. For the sake of our nation. So that the whole nation doesn't die. Because if the Romans come in, you're right. We're all going to die. That's what they're afraid of. The Rome, the, there's always been rebellions in Israel. There, there's Israel, there's, you know, the, they had another party besides the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that party was called the Zealots. They usually lived up around the Galilean area. And the whole Galilean area was known for a lot of political revolts. Barnabas was one of them. The one that they let go at the when they Barabbas 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 yes yeah, yes Barabbas, so so these zealots were these zealots were always wanting to to uh, rebel against Rome and Rome was always having to put down their rebellions and so there was danger they knew that hey we can only go so far with these Romans they're going to come in and they're going to take away everything and kill us all and, and so Caiaphas says if we put this one man to death we can save the whole nation that's his plan. So we see right here, hatched in the mind of Caiaphas, the idea that what we have to do, gentlemen, is we have to kill Jesus. So we see it coming to fruition. We see, as John has said, that he's 
been putting Jesus on trial for us all through this book. Who's going to believe and who isn't? And here's what, here's what the, the verdict is. Here's their indictment, if you will. I mean, not the verdict, the indictment. Now, John adds a rather interesting commentary note here. This is interesting commentary. John adds in here. He says in verse 51 that Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord. But being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation. And not only for the nation, here's great commentary here, not only for the nation, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. What is John saying? What's he saying? Is he foretelling? John is, John is telling... Salvation of the world? Yes, yes, he is. He's saying what Caiaphas doesn't realize what he's saying. He's saying Caiaphas is actually prophesying the truth, even though he doesn't know it. He doesn't understand. It's not just going to be for the that the nation is saved. Jesus' death is going to be so that the whole world is saved. Now, there's no way Caiaphas could have ever known or wanted that. Okay? The Jews didn't want the whole world saved. The Jews believed. They were the chosen people of God. There was no hope for Gentiles. There was no place for them in God's kingdom. So there was no, nothing in his mind. So how would God use Caiaphas to prophesy? Whatever is meant for bad, the Lord uses for good many times. Yeah, and sometimes God can use people that are not necessarily on his side, doesn't he? We've seen that happen. And he's sovereign. Remember the story of Balaam in the Old Testament that that had the donkey talk to him. Remember that guy? Mm-hmm. Balaam was being used to prophesy for God even though Balaam wasn't even a, a Jew. I mean, he wasn't even a Hebrew. He wasn't even, well, God can use people, okay, for his the more, Isn't it the more evil they are? Well, like, he is, he is attempting to try to cause all this commotion, but God's going to turn it around and use it. He's going to use his evil to save the world. <clears throat> it's exactly what's going to happen. He is going to, his evil, the plan of his the plan to kill Jesus is an evil plan. Sounds like we're doing some construction somewhere. <laughs> Sorry for all that noise. I didn't realize we were doing any of that today. Maybe they started on a roof. The roof Sounds leaks. Sounds like they're moving the chairs. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but one of the one of the things that that I think it's it's so important. It says right here the closing comment. There was so from that day on, they took counsel. And how to put him to death. Okay, so from that day on, this was a turning point. Caiaphas, who is the high priest, he's the head of the Sanhedrin. So whether this was an official meeting of the Sanhedrin, it's a moot point. Because he's going to eventually take it to the Sanhedrin. And they're all going to hatch this plan. Everybody's going to be in on it. The 70 plus 1 in all of their peoples. Because we see in the next few verses that, um, that it says that uh, they've put out there that if in the last verse we read, the last verse of the chapter, it says that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the plan is in place. Everything is set. The powers that be have decided Jesus must die. And if you see him, you are to turn him in. So the narration, the, the story here changes here. It says in the beginning of verse 54 that Jesus therefore no longer went about openly among the Jews. Remember where Jesus was. He had just been in Bethany. Right? 
Bethany where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany is just a small little suburb to the east of Jerusalem, very close, on the eastern side of Mount, the Mount of Olives. And so now it says, so he's close to Jerusalem. It was very easy for the Jerusalem and the people of the temple and the Sadducees and all those to be around the Bethany area. But it says he feels, Jesus knows it's not, again here I think we see his sense of time. He knows it's not time. Jesus knows from the Father when the time is right and now's not the time. So we don't know exactly by the month or the week when this is, but we know we're already into that season, that spring season that's leading up to uh, Passover. So we know that we're close. And it says here, uh, he no longer would go openly amongst the Jews. We know that he was led by the Spirit not to because it wouldn't be the right time. But he went, says there, from there to the country near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. So he went further out east, further out into kind of a southeast. If you go southeast of Jerusalem, there's a lot of wilderness area, rocky, deserty area. And, and he's going that direction. There's another town called Ephraim it's in the hill country. Uh, one of the uh, names you recognize from the children of, of Israel. So he goes to Ephraim and he stays there for a while. It says there he stayed with the disciples. So the twelve went with him. Now in verse 55, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. We don't know how much time has passed, but we know it's probably been no more than a few weeks to a few months based on where the healing was done and when the Passover is coming. So what is happening here, the Passover is at hand. Many of the people from the country went from the country to Jerusalem. Why are they going to Jerusalem? For the Passover. For This was one of the three holy feasts that if you lived within, I forget now, it was 20 miles, you had to go. Um, but everyone wanted to go because this was, this was the high holy feast. I mean, this was, this was the, the greatest. This was the one that, that remembered their redemption from, from Egypt. Egypt and the bondage of slavery. Right. So the Passover was, I mean, was, Jerusalem was just going to be flooded with people from all over as they're coming. And it says here, John gives us another little note, a little commentary note. He says that they went up early before the Passover to purify themselves. The purification laws took a lot of time. I mean, you couldn't just do like we do and, you know, it's Christmas and we run to service and get there five minutes before service starts, right? <laughs> Can't do that in those days. You got to plan a trip to the city. You got traveling was difficult, but you also had to take into account that you had to prepare your uh, for the sacrificing. You had to ritualistically bathe and do the things that were rituals that, that required cleansing and pure because you needed to be pure when you came to the day of the Passover and actually worshiping God in their hearts. So they needed to be pure, and so they go early, and then it says that the crowds talking amongst themselves. You can hear the mutter of the crowd. What are they saying? It's people are talking to each other. They're saying, asking, is he going to come? What do you think? Is he going to come? Passover? The buzz all around Jerusalem in the streets is, do you think Jesus is going to come? You know, is he going to come? He has become the talk of the town. Because the people have heard. They, I mean, can you imagine you're an everyday citizen of Jerusalem and some representatives of the Sanhedrin told you, by the way, you see this Jesus? You let us know. There's a death warrant out on that guy. You know, word gets out. Yeah. And and there's so there's a, there's a, this anticipation. This is heightening and it's building. And that's gonna 
course, we're going to see that building into the story of the cleansing of the temple and things like that. Um, But for now, they were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? Will he come to the feast? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. They don't want to just arrest him. We know that they want to kill him. And that's probably become pretty much uh, top of the mind news to a lot of people at this point. The question is, when Jesus comes, will he be that easy? There's a lot of questions in their minds, I'm sure. When he comes, will he be that easy to arrest? Just because they want to arrest him doesn't mean it's going to be an easy thing. Because by now... Remember the report, the whole reason he's got this death sentence on him is because he has become so popular that almost everybody's following him. Don't you think if they were a little bit worried that some of the people might even take up arms to, to, you know, protect him? Absolutely, absolutely. Jesus has the popular movement on his Mm -hmm. side at this point. Now it's going to be an interesting, we know the end of the story, of course. You know, we're all Christians here. The crowd turns on him rather quickly. Yeah. But, but at this point, he has the popular uh, the movement on his side. Lots of people have been believing in him. And I think that's part of this whole trial motif in this indictment. What John wants us very carefully in this book to weigh the evidence. Listen to the testimonies. Remember what's been happening in this... Uh, Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> this is our day for calls. Uh, remember what's been happening. We've had... People inter- you know, people remember the guy who was born blind. And remember how he, ev- he, you know, he starts out by saying, "I don't know, this guy healed me." You know, and by the end, you know, they're saying, "Is you, you, the guy heals me, and you can't tell he's the son of God." You know, we're seeing the witnesses. We're seeing the people that are in this story give their testimony of who Jesus is. John wants us to read their testimonies. John wants us to make a decision. That's right. Do we believe? Whose side are we on? Look at the evidence. So in many ways, John's gospel is this deep theological gospel because he's presenting evidence of Jesus' divinity, uh, uh, of Jesus' uh, place and ministry and power and authority, and he wants people to come to a decision. Uh, Perhaps that's why the gospel of John has always been evangelist favorites. I mean, you, you look at evangelism materials and there's always uh, copies of the Gospel of John and, and letters from the Gospel of John. I know the Billy Graham Association gave away every time they went anywhere, I assume they still do, little copies of the whole Gospel of John. Mm-hmm. This book is incredibly important in the Gospel narratives because this book fills a place that the other three books didn't. Now, interesting note, just kind of a, a last note here on, on Caiaphas. If we look at the four Gospels, uh, Caiaphas is only, uh, he's, he's only seen really in uh, two of them functioning this way, and that's John and Matthew. Okay? In John and Matthew. In Matthew, if we went back to Matthew chapter 26, which is where the, the, the trial story begins... It says that they gathered on early in the middle of the night or whatever to Caiaphas' house. And it doesn't mention that Caiaphas is in that first meeting. But then it says they take him on trial before 
Caiaphas. Um, and then uh, Mark mentions, uh, let's see, I had it in my notes here. Mark has uh, a note here that uh, he says that Jesus was brought before the high priest, but he doesn't mention Caiaphas' name. Luke actually uh, doesn't show, though, though the name of Caiaphas is there, he doesn't show there's any interrogation by Caiaphas. And actually that's what's different about John's gospel too. When we get to this heightening of the story of Jesus going to the cross, there's no trial scene in this narration. And Caiaphas started it. Caiaphas he, is the guy that started. He said, "Let's put him." What to was death. the arrest warrant for? I forgot. Well, for, be, for doing miracles, or for basically, yes. For well, they're going to say that because he's blasphemed, he says okay. he's oh, made blasphemed. himself he's yeah. made himself out to be God. Yeah. So therefore, he deserves Caiaphas. to die. Okay. But in reality, Caiaphas is the one that says, "Let's put him to death." I think yeah. that's the, that's the most expedient answer. Now that brings us all the way to the close of this chapter. Now, in chapter twelve, is going to open with uh, a story that we're very familiar with, perhaps, for, um, let me turn to it here, the preparation, uh, the anointing at Bethany. This is a beautiful story of Mary anointing Jesus with the, uh, the fragrant oil, wiping his feet. Uh, beautiful story. So I'm going I'm to save that. We don't have really enough time to get into that. So I'm going to save that till next time. But if you look at the beginning of chapter 12, it says six days before the Passover. So now John's getting specific with us. We're down to the last week. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany. So he was in Ephraim for a while. He was in Bethany to the raise Lazarus, then went out because things were getting tight again with the, the hunt to catch him. And so he goes out to Ephraim. Now he comes back to Bethany six days before the Passover. The same place where Lazarus was raised um, from the dead. So, they're going to talk about a dinner party that they're going to throw for him in chapter 12. And we're going to talk a little bit about where that dinner party's at and who's all at that party and things like that because it's a pretty important event that happens, a significant event. But we'll save that till the next time. Questions? Comments? I know this is offbeat, but it's just it's okay. kind of how I think. Yeah, that's okay. And have questions about. Okay. But the, the Sanhedrin, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, were those like paid positions? Or did they come into those by hereditary? I mean, how... It's a good what question. Was, what was their point? I mean, what made them want to do that? Were they appointed or... That's an excellent question. It's like, like uh, I don't know that I have the exact answer, but it's a great thing I'll try and research. A lot of it's handed down. Okay. okay? A lot of it's, it's hereditary. It's handed down. But I imagine there was some type of uh, remuneration maybe levied in taxes or something. I mean, they had to do something for their meeting time. It's hard to see these guys taking their time to meet for free. Um, do you think they had other jobs in life and I, stuff? I don't know. That's a great question. Uh, well, clearly the high priest, he functions that. I, I think they did. I think there were business owners. I think there were shop owners. There were all kinds of... Because they're the wealthier people. And what that means, you know, was their wealth just handed down to... There are wealthy people in two different ways. The wealth that's handed to them and the wealth that they made. So it's a good question. Well, uh, Paul, I'll research that a little okay. bit for you. Paul Thank went you. and he was a Pharisee. Paul was, yes. And he and his he was brought up by a Pharisee father. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, highly educated, and they sent him out to persecute the Christians, and he was being he was being paid so much for every one of them he turned in. Yeah. So he was making money off of that like a bounty hunter, kind of. Sure. So the the life of Paul is a fascinating one. Oh, yes. When we look at the Pharisees, we see one difference we've talked about today when we think of the life of Paul. Um, when, uh, well, not Paul, I guess I'm going to think in the book of Acts. But in the book of Acts, when, uh, when Paul is on trial, uh, I can't remember what chapter it is right now, but you might remember this. He appeals, he's before the Sanhedrin, mm-hmm. and he appeals to the fact that he's a Pharisee. And he's also and a, he's, a, and he's a Roman but citizen. Well, but, yeah. but the point that, that he drives home is he says, I'm, I'm a Pharisee, and I'm here to preach the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, that's the gospel, right? right. Yeah. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right. And it says in, that, in the Acts narration there, it says that a big dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. <laughs> and the next thing they decided to bound him over for Rome, you know. So he knew how to play the political card. Oh, yes. Paul did when he was before the Sanhedrin. He knew all, all I got to do is bring up the resurrection. These guys will start the fighting amongst themselves. Because <laughs> one believes in it, one doesn't. He was sent to Caesar. Caesar. <laughs> so it was kind of, a, kind of an interesting little side story there. Other questions, thoughts, comments? What you're learning in the Gospel of John so far? This is this is fantastic. I'm I've, I've never been into a Bible study that was even close to getting to the depth where we are. We are getting to here. Well, there's a lot that go deeper. Yeah, I'm, I'm just sure I'm pretty shallow when when you look at all the scholars that well, teach I don't this think you stuff. Are. I, I just try and I, think you're great. I just try and scour the books. You're kind. I just try and scour the books to bring as much information as I can because I'm learning with you. Okay, I'm learning sure. with you. Okay, I'm not teaching from a vantage point of knowing it all at all. I, very easily could say something wrong up here, and I have many times. But yeah, uh, I was just thinking when it talks about <clears throat> things are passed down by oral tradition. Yes. Anything time things are passed down, they tend to change a little mm-hmm. bit. Yeah, they, little they do that. Things taken away. And you know, it's do. it's fascinating how this this could lead to a good discussion. Uh, how important is oral tradition? Um, I think it's very important. Um, we have to think. In terms of, is there a difference between oral tradition that God wants passed down? Because God's able to preserve his traditions or his word, you know? Or the oral traditions that you and I might hand down from our families. Uh, there's probably a difference there. But I think both are important. But I definitely, I think, the whole idea of tradition has a valuable place. Not only in our culture, in our families, but I believe in the church. Let's remember that as Wesleyans. Wesleyan Christians, we have the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Exactly. Scripture, yes, scripture, yes, but also scripture along with reason, tradition, and experience. Okay, so when we talk about tradition, it's fascinating. Uh, some Christians get a little nervous about the idea of Christian tradition because they think that the Catholic Church has always had their traditions and raised them up as laws. Well, isn't that kind of what we saw the Pharisees do mm-hmm. with some of this? But let's think about it. Jesus agreed with some of these. Yes, he did. It was tradition that was the soul was eternal. That wasn't part of the law in, in the Torah. And Jesus agreed with that. Jesus taught that. So truth can come from tradition. We, we need to know that. Now, here's an interesting statement the Apostle Paul makes. I think it's in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, I don't know if I can turn to that real quick. But I want you to hear this statement. 
This is Paul the Apostle. If I, get the, if I can get it right, I think it's 2 Thessalonians. Uh, here we go. Yep, I got it. Hey, I got one finally. I don't always remember that. I, I don't always remember the chapter and verse. Um, Paul, this is Paul speaking. Verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this that he called you through the gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Key verse right here is 15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Isn't that a fascinating verse? The apostles not only wrote letters, which we call the Bible, okay, the New Testament, that were traditions preserved in letter and written form, but what Paul is saying is there's other traditions we've taught you by our mouths when we were there with you. You know, when he spent all those years, what was it, three years or something like that in Ephesus, you know, there's so much. So that became known in the early church as apostolic tradition. Mm -hmm. Apostolic tradition. Now, very important, that's right. Very important. Now, granted, there might be some things that some churches would teach are part of apostolic tradition we may have a problem with. But we can't say that apostolic tradition is not important. It is. So I think it begs a question that's a great point, Dorothy, that you make. Because are, when we pass on traditions, are we passing them on in good spirit? Are we passing it? Is If it's important to us, here's what I think. If it's important we'll pass it on well. If it's important to us. You know what I mean? You've got something really important to you, you're going to make sure you pass it on well. So, we can ask that same thing about our church, or the church in general. If it's important, do we pass it on? What's important? Does what's important get passed on? So God is, you know, we're 2,000 years into this journey of Jesus uh, in the kingdom of God. And... Uh, he hasn't returned yet, so we know the kingdom shall go on until he does uh, in this age, and then, it'll, of course, it'll continue forever in the age to come. Uh, but that, that concept of tradition is real important as we look at this. I found it fascinating that Jesus and the Pharisees had so much in common, but yet the spirit was all wrong in what a lot of... And so, as we're going to see, I think as somebody brought up here today, there are Pharisees that do believe in Jesus. They're Pharisees that will come out publicly and openly believe in Jesus. Well, this has been great. Thank you for your time and questions. Let's let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for time together today in your word. I pray that you would just enlighten our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit to hear and to learn what you would have us to learn from these words from the Gospel of John and the other things that we've mentioned. And Father, cover over anything that I say that is not uh, that is not right, and, and let no one be led astray. But Father, let you be glorified by this teaching. We ask this in the strong name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, 
May grace and peace be with you.